Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Paloma Media Podcast. I'm Nancy Rommelman, sitting in my Paloma Media studios in Chinatown, New York City, speaking with Sarah Heppala, author and journalist and someone who just wrote an essay that rocked our worlds so much. We had to reach out to her in person, and just coincidentally, she seemed to be reaching back just like around the same day, right? So... That was about a week and a half ago, and now we're best friends, and now we're sitting here. Uh, now we're sitting here podcasting. Um, but before we get to that article, since we brought it up, uh, Sarah wrote a book in 2015 called Blackout, uh, remembering the things I drank to forget. And I read this book last week, and I loved this book. I thought it was crazily, deeply honest. Also pretty hilarious at times. Like just, I wrote down this entire list of like one-liners, like punching an old lady in the neck. I just like, just, you're just so funny. But if you want to maybe, you could talk a little about the book, but maybe we just talk about the, what? Yeah. Right? I just want to explain the punchline a little bit. Because, <laughs> Go for it. Because lest, lest your listeners think that I have some sort of crazy Will Smith-esque violent impulse, which I really, I really don't. But I believe the context was that uh, when I was drinking, I would jones for a cigarette so bad that i would do anything i do believe i said something like i would punch an old lady in the neck to yeah. get to get to get a cigarette out of her hands hey, that is I- that is probably true uh i quit drinking 11 years ago so yeah and who amongst us with the cigarettes really i mean i don't smoke <laughs> either anymore but you know um but let you know we're not going to go into the, first of all go get the book i'm going to put i'm going to put a link in the show notes but you know <laughs> there aren't in my experience, a lot of like nonfiction memory books that are this solid and funny and informative and very stripped down bare. Like you took it all off about a lot of stuff that will that, that I texted to you about this morning. We'll let me talk about in a little while. But I thought I might ask you, since you're sitting in your closet again, tell us uh, um, what you did in your closet when you were trying to quit drinking. Yeah, it's funny. I've actually never made this connection between all the time I've spent in my closet doing this podcast and the time I used to spend in my closet in New York. I was living in a very small apartment in the West Village, which I thought would be really cool. And I had seen the apartment without any furniture in it. So I was like, this will be great. And then I got there and like I put my bed in and I was like, done. And so there wasn't a lot of space in that uh, apartment. I was for a long period of time, I, I think about a couple of months. So that was long to me waking up with a sort of spiraling existential dread that felt unmanageable to me. And I think a lot of it had to do with my attempts to quit drinking. Um, my work at the time, I was an editor at salon an experience that I found quite overwhelming. Um, and I was a single woman in New York a city that I was in for six years, but never really felt like it. It always, I always felt like a cat being rubbed the wrong way. You know, it's just like everything sort of didn't work for me um, from Texas. And I think I'd maybe just been acclimated to a different way of life. Anyway, I, I was embarrassed to say that at the time. I wanted to be a New Yorker who doesn't want to be a New Yorker. So, especially if you're a creative person, anyway, to answer your question, uh, I discovered that if I woke up at four or five, which I often did, and I would have these panic attacks, I could get in the closet. Uh, I had a very small closet back then. So it would just close right on my face. And then the drape of the clothes would be sort of against me. It was sort of like my creation of 
maybe like an immersion tank or those things that, uh, what's your name? Uh, the autistic author talks about like hugging you. I don't know where I'm going with this. Yeah, no, no. It's when you, you, you kind of like you bind babies to make them feel safe. No, no, no. That's perfect. That's perfect. Binding babies is perfect. I even use that analog because I had worked at a daycare once uh, for a foster home for children with catastrophic illnesses. And there was, this is really going to be weird, but there was a baby without a brain. Uh, There was severe uh, abnormalities. Um, He had uh, hydroencephaly. But anyway, you had to bind him very tightly or else he would feel very lost in space. Uh, And he would cry and freak out. But if you bound him, he would stop crying. And so I found that very fascinating when I was a 20-something woman working there. But then I was about 35 and I just, I felt like I needed that binding. It was, um, you know, there's funny, it's, there's probably about a handful of details that feel so vulnerable to me, probably even still. Um, that one is one of them. I, um, I didn't understand why I was doing it. I, I know now that when you stop alcohol, even if you don't have what are called delirium tremens or DTs, you have sometimes a low-key withdrawal. It often manifests in things like panic attacks. You you know, I, I heard that Hemingway, after he quit drinking, was having panic attacks. This is very common for people that have drank for as long as I did. I drank for about 25 years. So the body is is adjusting to a new kind of revenue stream or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, I would, I would get in the closet and I would get there for, I would would be there for about mm, somewhere between 30 minutes. Sometimes I would fall asleep. Sometimes I would just kind of lie there. And every once in a while I had a cat that I really loved. And sometimes he would like scratch on the door and then I would like open the door and let the cat in there. And then we'd, we'd, we'd sort of sit in there together. It, It was, it was a very, very low time in my life. Well, the thing is that, like, you know, you're saying lost in space for someone who is um, trying to stop drinking or do drugs or whatever behaviors you need to find to not be lost in space. So you need to get yourself snug in a little place. Um, there's also the the phrase um, structure equals freedom. So you have that structure, just like writing. You were Smart. writing about how, you know, you get up at Smart. 5.30 in the morning and you write for four hours. It's the only way I was able to finish my book. And I'm sure you had some kind of schedule too. Like you can't. You can't just say, like, I'll just fly around the room here and be out till four in the morning and maybe I'll get to it at 12. You you had to have that structure in order to keep yourself safe and then be, I guess, get strong. I, I, lo- I, I love the phrase structure is freedom. I've actually never heard it. And um, I, I think that it speaks so much to what I was struggling with at the time because I'd really absorbed the sort of countercultural idea that is so prevalent in the late 20th, early 21st century that, that like lack of structure is, is freedom, that fighting back on authority and uh, any kind of like, don't tell me what to do. There was a deep defiance, but that is chaos, you know, to not have, it is, lo- you're, you're lost in space. Yeah. And I am so much happier in structure. Oh, structure equals freedom. You you get yeah. to, you know what you're going to do, like whether it's your your exercise routine or your writing routine, and then you can do, you know, you can do whatever you want. I, I actually, when I was, uh, I had a book that came out a couple of years ago, um, To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder. And I structured myself mm-hmm. so much to the point where I was like eating the same food, like every morning, every afternoon. It, it, sorry. 
Go ahead. Well, I was going to actually tell you before you even shared that story. I eat the same um, breakfast every day and lunch yeah. every day. Yeah. And I would eat the same dinner every day if I didn't go out as much as I did. Um, I wear the same clothes every day. Oh Do you remember God. in The Fly I... when he opens up his closet, the movie The Fly with Jeff Goldblum? Yeah. And it's like a million suits of the same kind. Like that is, that's, I totally got that. Like I oh. don't... I just, Buck- I want food to happen and I don't care. Like, I don't want to think about it. I, I, I love food and I love to cook. But the thing is that, you know, Buckminster Fuller did the same thing. He had like the same, oh, you open his closet. It's a lot, a lot of people do because then you're able to, and I have like stripped down possessions too. It's like, I want to be able to do a lot of stuff like with my brain and, and, yep. and stuff. And people actually say that that's kind of either a boring or manipulative. I remember someone saying, you know, to have someone like, that's very manipulative to just like have the same stuff every day. I'm like, well, look, it works for me. Like I, you don't have to be part of it. You don't have to do it or feel threatened by it. I'm just, it works for me and it it helps me get the work done. I don't know. She's a strange bird. So we'll, uh, it seems like the opposite of, it's just, it's, I mean, people also think it's like boring or you want variety. It's like, no, I have plenty of variety in my life, but if I want to eat, like I actually made a big pot of food today. Cause I know for the all day I'm going to be doing stuff. I don't want to think about it. It's like, I'm done. Like I yeah. took care of that part yeah, already. That's the thing. And to be clear, when I say I want food to happen, I'm talking about when I'm working. Like I really yes. do also love food a little too much, but, yeah. um, it's just like when I'm working, it just, it's a creative drain and I can't, I, I don't want to think about it. It is. It, yeah. It, it takes you away from what you need to do. You got to get up and eat and go back to the laptop and yeah. then, uh, and then have the rest of your day. Um, yeah, your, your book was, um, uh, stunning and really important. Um, I think for, I mean, I actually, we'll just get down. I, I think you, you know this, I, I emailed you something the other day, an article that I'd written, like I had something happen the other day. We were here, uh, recording a podcast, an episode of the the Fifth Column podcast. They also record in this studio. And I was the guest because we were both had been in Ukraine, Michael Moynihan and I. And, and I had a couple of drinks, about two and a half drinks, and um, basically kind of don't remember the end of the podcast. And Michael said to mm. me a couple of days later, he's like, I've never seen someone go from just like talking to like blank face. Um, I don't drink a ton, but clearly that amount of alcohol didn't work for me. And I thought about it later. I was like, okay, I didn't eat. No, go ahead. Well, I have some questions, some yeah. follow-up questions, because there's yeah. there's troubling interactions that alcohol has with certain pharmaceuticals. So I'm curious if you've uh, had anything like a Xanax or no, anything I, like, no, no, okay, no. so this is no. a very common one. If you, a Xanax is a very commonly, uh, used and abused drug, it will have a, basically you'll roofie yourself if you do Xanax and drink on top of it. The other one is pharmaceuticals. No. Nope. Uh, the other one is hormones. Uh, a very small vegetable hormone patch that I wear, mm-hmm. but I, but I, it's, it's I have had this. Were you drinking on an empty stomach? That was the problem. I had yeah. not had m- very much to eat and I, it just like, I, believe me, I usually can drink two and a half cocktails, the, not yeah. that night. And it, it actually, so I was actually, <laughs> when they posted the episode of the podcast, they're like, Nancy Rommel drops in, gets drunk. I was like terrified to listen to the end of yeah. the podcast. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was so, I was so mortified. I was listening to it. Like the first hour I sounded fine. We all sounded fine. And like the last 30 minutes I was listening to it in like two minute 
increments because I was so terrified. It turns out Matt Welch, who's the other, he's like, it's fine. Listen to it. Yes. And it was fine. It was fine. But when they got out of the studio, because the studio is attached to my apartment, they went in and I was apparently face down on the couch. I was just yes. like, done. Bye. Over. Yeah. And I, this, I wonder, it's something that you were saying about this. Obviously, I mean, we should talk about, I would really think it would be a public service if you could explain to people the difference between not just blacking out and passing out, but browning out, yep, which is, yep, I yep. think, what I suffered from the other night and have suffered from in the past a few yep. times. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Before I, I tell you that, I just have to share a story that you reminded me of, which is that when I was in my 20s, I had a group of guys that were, to me, like my fifth column guys. They were all comedians, yep. and I hung out with them all the time. They were doing a show for about 200, 400 people in a backyard, and I was supposed to go up there. I was coming from a wedding. And I was supposed to go up there and do what they had tagged as a drunk Q&A, which is, you know, questionable entertainment in the first place, but whatever. They were, they were all singers and I was just like, oh, I'll do this drunk Q&A. Well, I got up there. The last thing I remember is standing in front of 400 people. And then I woke up. <gasps> I have, to this day, no idea what I said in front of those people. Apparently, I talked about Winnie the Pooh and my first sexual experience, which sounds about right. <laughs> um, and I was told that I was told by my very I was just starting to date this guy, which was mortifying. And he was like, no, I think you had some hard questions and you answered them well. But I mean, what was he? He'd probably be nice to me. I would not. I don't think I could watch that. I, I, I applaud you for listening to yourself. Yeah. Because I don't, I mean, I, I was blessed because this was like 2002. There were no iPhones. So, yeah. so you yeah. didn't have to confront, nobody had a recording of this. And I just don't know if I could physically watch it. I already have a hard time watching myself on video, watching myself in that state of alcohol amnesia. It would just be too painful. Um, but, uh, you know, a, but to, to answer your question, a blackout comes from a spike in the blood alcohol content. And the, the word spike is very important because it's not necessarily the amount of alcohol that you drink. It's how fast it hits your blood system. It's yes. the spike that seems to, to start to mess with or disable what's called the hippocampus, which is what's in charge of placing short-term memory into long-term memory. So what's so confusing <clears throat> is that you'll be able to talk and interact with people, but you can't remember it later. So blackout is a state of alcohol induced amnesia. And the most common confusion about it is that it's confused with passing out, which sounds kind of like passing out, right? You blacked out, you were gone. Right, right. But they're quite different because when you pass out, which is also alcohol induced, you're unconscious, you fall asleep. But in a blackout, you can be walking around, you can be talking with people. There are reports of people flying planes and blackouts, creating whole dinner parties, hosting them, um, uh, traveling cities. It's, it's crazy. And surgery. You had, I think, a Sur Yes, there's a story surgery. about a guy, about an alcoholic um, surgeon doing a black, you know, working in blackouts. This is a familiar thing for high-functioning alcoholics. Uh, it's very rare, but it still happens. I believe the Denzel Washington movie, um, crash or flight or fly or something, something he's a pilot 
and he's landed a plane in a in a blackout and can't remember how he did it. That's based wow. on a true story. Wow. Um, and he's he's struggling with his own inability to remember how it happened. Um, that'll give you a sense that you know you still have access to what's called procedural memory, which is the memory that you tie your shoes or you open a can or something like that. It's just simply that none of these things are getting stored into long-term memory. Now, there's many, there's two basic different kinds of blackout. Uh, one is called fragmentary blackout or browning out. Um, it's the far more common kind. I think of it like a light flicking on and off in your memory. So you can remember some things, but not all of them. Fragmentary losses can be anywhere from like five seconds to like a few minutes. Um, they, uh, they're again, much more common, the more rare and extravagant and frightening form of blackout is what's called an on block blackout. It's a French word, E N new word B L O C. And it's where you lose hours of time. Um, those are the kind that I had, uh, to be honest, it sounds like that's the kind you had, but I don't know enough to it didn't tell. Last- very long, I know, because they finished up the podcast. I was they they came in and talked, and then we hung out for a while, and I was awake and and fine because I didn't drink anymore. I had stopped drinking at that point, so I you know I had my drinks. I kind of like plopped out for a little while, and then kind of revived. Maybe my blood alcohol. I don't know. Yeah. So what, what happens is that yeah, what happens is that your blood alcohol content lowers. So that the hippocampus can start working again. And, you know, this is actually what happened to me in the opening of my memoir. I tell a story about being in Paris on a writing assignment and I was drinking and I was having a great time and I was drinking cognac, which was not, I was actually not a liquor drinker normally for in, in, in part because it made me so susceptible to blackouts and I hated having them. And so, but I was partying, I was out in Paris. Anyway, I remember coming back to the hotel and the next thing I knew I was on top of a guy and I was having sex with him. And I had never seen this guy in my life. Although I have to say, I obviously had seen him before because uh, what I learned later was that I had met him in a bar downstairs and we had gone upstairs. And I mean, this is all like maybe too much uh, detail, but it's like, this is a very terrifying thing, but I was also on top of him. So it was just sort right, of like, right. it was this really weird disjunction between like being in control of something and being utterly, uh, fathomlessly out of control. So I want to say a couple more things about blackout because they're very important and people don't know them is that, you know, first of all, they're uh, about 50% of, of drinkers have them. Um, there were that's studies a lot. done. It, that's, that's a lot. A lot. Mm, that's a lot. And in fact, when Aaron White, who's now at NIAAA, originally did these studies at Duke University as part of a binge drinking study, he brought this to the committee and they sent him back and said, this is too high. You're wrong. And <laughs> what they realized was that we as a like culture, but also like they as a medical culture, did not understand blackout. They thought it was far more rare. It is really um, an outgrowth of binge drinking. And binge drinking is something of a late 20th century and early 20th century phenomenon, meaning things like pre-gaming, meaning things like taking shots, 
um, uh, keg stands. Uh, I don't know if people do those anymore. Um, but, uh, pounding drinks, things like I was at brunch the other day with a lovely woman who told me on her 30th birthday, she took 30 shots. And I was like, <gasps> Oh my God. The kind of thing that will put you in a hospital. I mean, I've actually oh, read stories sure. about kids dying of alcohol poisoning because there was a thing called the hundreds for a while in frat circles where you would do a hundred shots of beer. I believe, although sometimes it was different things. Um, the, the body, what's happening is the body just can't take the amount of alcohol that you're putting in the system. So there's very specific risk factors. I think the most important one is drinking on an empty stomach. And it's something that women in particular do for a variety of reasons. But in my case, I was always trying to cut the calorie load of drinking. And so it was like, I'll just like, I was on Weight Watchers once and I would like, yeah, the point system and all my points would just be booze. And then I would just, it's so ridiculous. But, um, you know, I had learned that if I drank my dinner, basically it could even out to a certain amount of calories. So this is a very frequent thing, especially in younger women uh, who are a little bit more vigilant maybe about their weight. And also in these environments where that kind of pre-gaming is really normalized and encouraged. Uh, the other one is that this is genetically determined. So some people will never black out. It's fascinating. But many alcoholics, about 50%, will never have a blackout. And then there's a genetic link. I am Irish and Finnish, which is basically like the champion dog of drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just absolutely. I got. Per- hey, wait. The polls are really, really solid in this I, area I as well. I know they are, Man. and I'm not gonna. Yeah. I don't want to like go up against you on yeah. that. I yeah. just want to <laughs> say that, like, if you are part Irish and part Finnish, you are like. I think I have a line where I'm like, I want to you know, fall off my bar stool and then cry about the darkness of the world or something like that. You know, it's just like, I'm so, I'm so weirdly a combination of those two things, which are very different, but very powerful drinking cultures. I know, listen, the Irish people, I'm not a scientist. I'm just going to tell you anecdotally, the Irish people, they are blackout drinkers. I I don't know why. I don't know why. And I've heard Monahan talk about his blackout, Denise. Isn't he part Irish? Yeah, half Irish, half Italian. Boy, yeah. but I got to tell you, that guy can drink and you don't even know he's had a drink. It's crazy. Yeah. He's just- Which uh, is one of yeah. the, I mean, listen, I don't know that guy, but I'm you will. Sort of slightly <laughs> obsessed with him because he's so freaking smart. But like, um, but but that little right there that you can drink so much and nobody can tell is like one of the red flags for like, oh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very attached to a guy here that was just telling me that the other day that um, was saying it in as much as like, he was like, so proud. He's like, you know, nobody can ever tell when I'm drunk and we'll be texting and he never, there's no typos. There's nothing. There's no tells. And I was like, okay, you have to understand that's not good. Right. The, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I'm not suggesting to either of these men, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous are filled with people that bragged about, not nobody could tell when I was drunk. And I was one of those people. I mean, until I got to that blackout state, that disabling state, I was so good. I would do, and that's why I was willing to get up in front of an audience and do a Q and a, 
And I would call my mom, I would call my friends. I would like, I was so proud of the fact that I never slurred. But what would happen to me is I would hit this disabling point with the BAC and then I would be a complete mess. I would fall off my bar stool. I fell downstairs many, many times. Oh, I know. Um, I kept reading in your book, people like, oh, you know that time you fell down the stairs and then 30 pages later, somebody else like, you know that time you fell down the stairs. I was like, oh, I, I don't even think I write about the fact that the first time I went to New York, I was 25 years old and I was in a Turkish diner on the Lower East Side and I've been drinking all day and I fell down a flight of metal brace stairs <gasps> And I ended up in St. Vincent's Hospital. Where I was born. Oh, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Very close to the place I lived in the West Village eventually. And I had a concussion and a giant knot on my head. Uh, and it was a terrible experience. And then I, I was I was teaching high school at the time. I had a very, very short period of time. So short, I don't even mention it in the memoir. But I had a black eye. Oh, yeah. And I, I had to go to school in this sweet boy that wasn't even in my class pulled me aside in the hallway and said um what's his name ma'am we'll beat him up oh god i love it no this is one this is one tell when you're like you see people on the street whether they're drug addicts or they're drinkers the drinkers always have bumps bruises broken things because they fall down yeah okay drug addicts don't fall down the way drinkers i mean i i've never been a drug addict but i i i've written a lot of things and they all are they're always racked up because they fall. You know? Yeah. And then you have the complicating factor that I'm five foot two and I'm from Dallas. And so I'm like genetically predisposed to wear heels too often. Yeah. that's. And so help. my insistence on wearing heels everywhere and drinking to the point of blackout, it's basically, it really, I'm not being glib. Like it's kind of a miracle that I survived that period of time. So you and I also have something else in common in that we often hang out with a bunch of dudes. I yep. always have. My my crew is usually dudes, um, and I obviously would hang out with my husband, who is 6'5", and we yep. would drink, and he's like, you know, 220, and I'm, you know, 130 on a heavy day. And, you know, I was just sitting there drinking, and all of a sudden, he's just pretty much fine, and I am a wreck. So body weight has to do with it, too. And yeah, they, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, when I think there's an association of blackout with very big, heavy guys, which is the opposite of what happens. Big, heavy guys don't tend to blackout because their alcohol, their body can take the yep. the liquor load. Um, I've I've now spent six years or six or seven years with people coming up to me and telling me they're a blackout drinker. They're very often the smaller people, and being small is a risk factor for blackout. Um, also being female because our, it, it's just one of these places where nature has some double standards and the body of a woman doesn't break down because of the fat content. Sorry, but I don't, yeah, I'm not have- saying it right, but like, you know, that's why the binge drinking standards are like four for women, five for men. It's, yep. it's, yep. it's because of the way our, our body metabolizes, um, alcohol and also probably the, uh, the effect of some hormones as well. So it's, it's so like the, the, the story that you just described, um, is so familiar to me. I spent two years of my worst drinking with a guy who was a beanpole, but he was six foot three. So he was more than a foot taller than me. <clears throat> I used to pride myself on, we drank the same. And yet at the end of the night, I would be falling down the stairs and he would be driving me home. And yeah, exactly. It, and, exactly. And then it would be a fight later and I would be like, he'd be like, I think you're drinking too much. And I was like, 
that is bullshit. I drank just as much as you. And he was like, I'm a foot taller than you. And I was like, that doesn't matter. See, this is a really interesting place where I feel like some of the ideas about women's equality have, have sort of blossomed into some delusions and, or at least magical thinking, because to me, I felt like, but I'm, I should be equal. Like I should be able to drink as much as a man. I should be able, and should is probably the key word there. Like, or can, like you, you can technically, but your body will have a different reaction to it. Um, one of the worst nights of drinking I ever had, again, I didn't write about this in the memoir, but it was out with a bunch of dudes from a rock band. We were judging a karaoke contest and they kept ordering boiler makers, which are like a beer with a Jaeger shot in it. Oy. And because I was judging the contest, people kept buying me shots and I was sitting down. You know that scene that the like the old idea of the old western where you stand up and then you fall over? Have you ever seen that? <laughs> that used to happen to me with blackout where I would be sitting down and then I think I I stand up and then it's like all my blood has started to go through the, my system and it hits me really fast and I wouldn't be able to remember. So anyway, I stood up from that table at some point and I couldn't remember anything after that. I was I was supposed to write about that karaoke contest for my paper. I had to get my boyfriend to tell me what happened. It was really a mess. Oh my God. What? what? So as a writer, that just blew my mind. It's yeah. like, okay, I'm on assignment. I'm here. I got to get this thing in. I. How did you, how did you pull that off? Sorry. So inside bad. baseball now. Did you kind of like cop to it? Like, no, hell no. Oh, okay. So you just like kind of elided over it. So it, yeah, I talked about the part of the story that I, I, I'd seen the guy before. And so I knew that he won. I mean, I just basically didn't know who won the karaoke contest. And like, apparently he performed it again and everybody cheered. So I was able to kind of like write around it. Um, but it was terrifying. And no, I did not cop to it, even though my column at the time was called Across the Bar because I was a music columnist and I was always in the bar. And that's the kind of thing that I would name my column. You know, I was a nightlife columnist. That was my first gig when I started yeah. writing in uh, in L.A. So it was, and of course, it was never like, and the margaritas are thirteen dollars. It was always like, all right, you're out in the bar with me, my my peeps. And um, yeah. so it's interesting. I've never felt like I had to like compete with dudes. Or, mm. I, it's just like you have a drink, you have two drinks. You're not thinking about it anymore. But I have had that competition thing when I was way younger. Physical stuff. I had a brother who was like crazily physically gifted, and all the dudes mm. I hung out with were all like athletes, basketball players, lacrosse players and we do this crazy stuff like okay let's scale the inside of this elevator shaft and I would feel like oh I should be able to do this and I did it and luckily I'm not dead because there was no freaking way I had the body strength to do what you know these 19 year old guys were doing but uh I actually just told that elevator shaft story the other day to my friends they're like are you crazy I'm like they're like what if an elevator had come up I'm like well it didn't so here we are um yeah yeah. okay I'm gonna jump tracks just a little because um uh we met kind of it's so funny Sarah and I don't know if you had this but when um so Matt Welch was actually the one that sent me your piece in the Atlantic. And what was the title of it again? The, the things, things I'm afraid to write about. Right. So he sent it to me. I was like gaga instantly. Mm. And I was like, why do I know her? I know her. I know I know her. I know somehow we've met, we've done, we've communicated. I went back in my emails. I went back in my old Yahoo email address that I haven't mm-hmm. had in like 10 years. I'm like, how is it that I 
knew your byline and like I knew who you were and yet we've never met, we've never emailed, but we are definitely without a doubt over the decades, we both come from the alt-weekly world, which I want to talk about a little bit, and we both are definitely writing in the same arenas. If for a little while you stopped and I got super blary and got in fucking trouble for it, but I don't care. Um, but um, so you wrote this piece, which I adored, which I, again, I give more, again, you know, the last piece that kind of echoed this a bit was George Packer's uh, The Enemies of Writing, which The Atlantic mm. published a couple of years ago, which was just amazing. And of course, he got dragged over the coals for it, which is like, it's one of these things, sometimes you see these, like these as Camille Foster would say, these kerfluffles uh, yep, online, yep, yep. and you, you're like, okay, I mean, I don't know if you got like a super thin skin, or you're like super ideological about X, and I could see like, okay, this kind of pisses you off. You read The Enemies of Writing, or you read your piece, and I'm like, there is no possible way to get upset about this. This is so beautiful. And I want to talk because I actually, I talked to you, we we talked on the phone, we decided we were going to podcast. And then I kind of went off and did whatever I've been doing, Ukraine stuff. Yeah. And I did not realize until I heard you on Megan Downs podcast, and everybody should go listen to Sarah on that. That was from last week, I believe. You said there was indeed a kerfluffle. But yeah. before we get to this, if you don't mind, could you maybe read those two little paragraphs I sent to you. Do you have them? Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, I think me... that kind of sums up. I mean, it's a, it's not a super, how long is it? How long is the piece? 2,000, 2,500 words, 3,000 words? It's like 2,000 words. Yeah. So, but this will give you a little sense of, of, you know, of, uh, of what Sarah's writing about. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about the kerfluffle. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. Let me get, sorry, I, I had to shut down some things just to make sure that I had enough <laughs> My my poor computer is just so old and dying. Okay. I, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I'm going to read this now, okay? Yeah. I'd spent the past five or so years watching celebrities, pundits, friends, and internet randos fall from grace for reasons as varied as sharing dumb jokes, making clumsy writing errors, accidentally showing their dong, and expressing controversial, though often widely held, opinions in the public execution chambers of social media. There had been more grievous allegations, of course, rape, pedophilia, physical abuse. But so many of these spectacles could be grouped under a more mundane heading. You can call it cancel culture. You can call it justice. All I know is that I hated it. And for five years, I kept very quiet about it. The reasons were simple, at least for me. Careerism, fear, a nagging sense that I did not know enough about any given controversy to weigh in publicly, though that never stopped so many others. Back in 2015, I was putting out my first book, and then I was promoting that book, and then I was struggling to write a second book, and I could not risk the personal and professional blowback that might accompany stepping, stepping into the wrong lane. I had long considered myself a liberal and feminist, but had grown terrified of being banished for views I considered reasonable at least worth discussing. But maybe, but what about, but actually? Every day I scrolled the endless river of outrage in all caps, watching people express similar views to mine only to be pounced upon. Once celebrated writers were being publicly rebranded as ghoulish, pieces of trash, red-pilled, 
The unwritten rule of elite media tribes seemed to be this. You spout the company line or you shut up. And that's why midway through a career built on speaking out, I shut up. Okay. So you open your essay with uh, the sort of a young guy that you have great intellectual conversations with and salty texts with. And he sort of said to you when you said, well, I can't, I can't write about these things. You're like, well, he's like, well, I thought that's what writers are supposed to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, what was there one thing um, that just made you say, fuck it, I'm writing? I think like a lot of big decisions in my life, it's an accumulation of experiences. It's uh, like when I quit drinking, it was never one moment. It was, I call it like drops that filled up in the bucket. And then one day the bucket tips. And so for years, I've been having the little drops accumulate. The one that you described was very meaningful to me because that was somebody that really admired me and really respected me. And he was reminding me who I was not. I was not Mm. the person that I wanted to be. He didn't mean to do this. He just reminded me of who I wanted to be all along. And um, the moment that really tipped it for me, I have a really good friend who's a writer. She's also married to a writer. And the two of them give me hope. They're sort of like a happy couple, but also is like a creative couple. And I think that's probably my dream. But anyway, um, she and I were talking one day, we over the past few years have, she's one of my friends that I I call them sort of like my phone a friend for difficult conversations, where some, some uh, controversy will explode in the media or on Twitter or whatever. And I'm not going to get in there. Like, I'm not going to say anything on Twitter, but I'm texting her like, Hey, do you want to talk about X? And she's like, Oh, yeah. And so we would have these two hour conversations on the phone. She doesn't live in Texas. And so we had a conversation in one night and she was like, I really think it's time for us. She, she was including herself cause she hasn't really been that vocal either. She's like, I really think it's things, something's out there is changing she didn't say vibe shift, but that's the phrase that I've seen applied to that moment. And she's like, I think this is the right time. And I thought she was correct. And I woke up the next morning. I wake up at like 530 because I'm like a middle-aged woman. It's the worst. Me too. <laughs> but, you know, but actually I shouldn't say that. It's kind of the best because I love writing in yeah. the dark. It's yeah. kind of like writing in the closet. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, I woke up at 530. I think I finished that piece around two o'clock. Wow, And I, I originally thought I was going to post it on my blog because bless my heart, I still have a blog. And they're called I, Substack now, Sarah. I, I know, I know, no, I know, <laughs> I know. They're not though because they're just SarahHappelow.com. I'm still rocking it, man. And I uh, haven't gone over to Substack yet. So uh, I said yet. Um, yeah. I was going to post it there. As the morning went on, I started to get the feeling of, this is a bigger piece than that. This is a good piece. I really quite like it. I'm very proud of this piece. I wrote it fast. And I think the reason is because it had been simmering in my head for so long. It was like, I was finally ready to just let it sort of pour out. It's not mm-hmm. like, like, I think when you write that fast, it's because you've been working on it 
of course, unconsciously and consciously yep. for a very long time. So I uh, wrote it and I sent it to four places. Well, I will admit first I sent it to my editor at Random House on my next book and to my agent. And I said, I would like to publish this. Do you see, uh, would you like to advise me against it? And they both were like, no. And so. Okay, quick question. I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. Had it been 2018, do you think they would have given you the same answer? That's a good question. Yeah. Because I think things are changing, but okay. I mean, it's a really good question. I I know I'd written something similar to this a few years ago and, and one of them was like, are you sure you want to take the repercussions for this? Mm -hmm. Are you sure you want to be rebranded as a, and she said the name of a writer that was sort of at the time. I don't, I don't like to, I'm not trying to be tantalizing. I just don't like reiterating the idea that some of these writers are their public persona, but the writer had quite a, problematic tag and she's like do you want to be her and I was like I don't know her she's a great writer though so anyway I I had to think about it so I think your question is a good one and and possibly not but they both said go for it I I um took it to four places I always wanted it in the Atlantic because I think they've done such a great job of navigating the last few years like really truly a a salon in the sense of I'm not using that because I used to work at salon which is a very diminished brand at this moment. But, um, but because they have that idea, like you get a lot of different ideas in one place. I think that's really exhilarating yes, and yes, very admirable. So I'm very, very, uh, I really admire what they've done with that, with that magazine. So anyway, I sent it to the Atlantic. I sent it to the cut at New York magazine. I sent it to the New Yorker and to slate and I have never gotten a rejection as fast as I got from the cut. Whoa. I think it was Whoa. maybe a world record, but I don't know, an hour. And there's probably been faster rejections, but that's really fast. I mean, she just wrote back and was like, no, thank you. And I was like, wow. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening. And, and you know now you, you, and also you, you kind of, you get a sense now, like, okay, what are they, what are they, what are they not interested in, in, in talking about? Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the slate editor was like, this is a great piece, but I don't think this is the right place for it. And it would have to be cut down tremendously. And, you know, there were other things at slate that, that just made it, I, I'd forgotten about some of the controversies that had happened at Sl- Anyway, it's a long story, but they were very kind, but no, no, thank you. And then the New Yorker took about two days and then they were like, no, not for us. So, and, oh, and I should say the Atlantic, um, my editor at the Atlantic, Scott Stossel wrote back that night and was like, wrote me the most wonderful, caring, uh, beautiful email about like, I know you probably don't want to place it with us. It's going to be online. The the money's not going to be great because it's not the magazine. I mean, it's hilarious when people say, well, yeah, you, you know, you've been so silenced writing for $2 a word in the Atlantic. And I'm like, uh, sir, you, you are not familiar with internet pay scale right now because it's, uh, think more along the lines of low three figures. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, Scott was like, you know, I, I know that you'll probably have better opportunity with this. I would love the chance to work with you though. And Scott Stossel is a wonderful editor, kind of old school, editor, meaning that he's just like, you'll get on the phone with him and go over edits. And he's such a like fine tuned ear and 
I don't know. I just really love working with those editors that feel like their job is there to like extol your message and protect your intent while serving the needs of the magazine. And Scott was just beautiful in that regard, you know, being a go between for fact checkers or being, this was a piece that had to be read by Jeffrey Goldberg and lawyers, Jeffrey Goldberg being the editor in chief of Atlantic. And, you know, and so I did not get a hard time from any of those people, but there were specific concerns, especially with the fact checking and especially around the Brock Turner case, um, because it was so fraught, the also known as the Stanford rape case, uh, even though it wasn't technically a rape at the time. And uh, that's going to sound like <laughs> it wasn't technically a rape. I mean, like, no, we're like, really, it's not the rape in the sense of what we've traditionally thought of that term uh, at all. Although one of the complicating things that's happening right now is that the definition of rape is, is shape shifting and, and broadening quite a bit dramatically, especially in places like California. So um, that was uh, something that we just went back and forth and back and forth on. But anyway, um, that's where I sent it. I sent it in January. I had envisioned it as a beginning of the year piece as sort of like my new year's resolution. Uh, but as these things go, it, uh, was held for a while. It was slated to run on the week that Ukraine happened. We held it for a week. Um, when it ran, it coincided with a couple of very hot button issues around trans community, which had not been in the zeitgeist when I wrote my own story, but there was a bill in Texas where I live um, that was lighting up uh, certain activist communities for good reason and a couple of other things. Uh, And so when I wrote the piece, this was one of the things I didn't see coming was that uh, my use of uh, the phrase biological differences being one of the things that I was afraid to write about would snag the attention of the trans activist community who took that ball and ran with it to mean that I was uh, wanting to write about the trans community, which was not true. I'm actually far more invested in the um, conversation about men and women and sort of alluding to our earlier conversation. One of the things I found in uh, doing a book tour was that Uh, on blackout was that people kept asking me about the differences between men and women. And then they would challenge me on even talking about the differences between men and women. And it struck me that we did not done a good job of talking about uh, equality of opportunity versus like, or or I I should say like, uh, how did I used to say it? See, it's been a while since my book tour, so I can't remember, but it's like biological differences inequality of biology, maybe, and equality of opportunity. And and basically the idea is, uh, the line that I used to use over and over again, is nature has some double standards. Your story about the elevator is great. I mean, you know, yes, we should all have equal rights and equal opportunity, but that doesn't mean that we should all be trying to lift a van with our hands uh, because that is uh, absurd. And so I was interested in talking about biological differences between men and women because my new book, the book I've been working on for like three years, and it's about dating and sex and singlehood and not having children, but having wanted them and, and all this stuff that happened to me in my forties. Um, you know, I wanted to write about fertility 
because I be, I was 41 when I realized I really should have had kids. And that's a really bad year to figure it out. Yeah. And um, I wanted to write about the differences between men and women around sex and bonding and like hookup sex culture. And I, that's what I was interested in. That's what fascinated me. I mean, the, the trans conversation is, is an important one, but it's, and I, I'm, I'm interested in it. But I'm not interested in writing about it. So, so anyway, that, that was that was one of the strange pieces of, uh, you know. So that was the blowback. It was the trans stuff because you happened to mention there were biological differences. And in terms of, I think, where you were talking about it, too, was like blood alcohol content and what happens like to yeah. a woman who's 120 pounds and a man who's yeah. 240 pounds. Yeah. Uh, uh, but did you also get pushback? I'm assuming you must have about your the way you addressed the Brock Turner story. Yeah. So I knew that that was going to be the part of the essay that got the strongest reaction. And it did. Um, And in a way, I wasn't surprised, but I thought that the pushback would be a little more substantive than it was. It was pretty shallow. And by which I mean that probably some of the most popular tweets, according to my mentions, um, were things like, if you want to defend a rapist, maybe you should keep your mouth shut. Or, um, you know, you don't mention the eyewitnesses to this thing. Or there was an interesting tweet that someone said, um, your sin in this story was sympathizing with Brock Turner rather than empathizing and not having the intellectual rigor to understand the difference between those two things, which was something that I just, it tripped me up a little bit. But when I read it later, I thought, oh, that's a very interesting idea. The idea that sympathy is the, the, the cardinal sin, the sin, as she puts it, um, and that empathy would have been okay. I think the other thing that really got under my skin was a lot of people being like, there was one, there was one woman that, that, that got a lot of, got a lot of heat, a lot of brand building opportunity for her. Cause she was like, well, she wanted to do like a little explainer. And she was like, I don't know this case very well, but simple Google searches will show you this, that, and the other thing. And she tried to do her little like Freakonomics radio podcast in, in thread form. And what was amazing about that was, This is a case that if you give somebody an inch, they want 10 miles. And you really have to be careful about how you talk about it. Because there's so many... I really tried to minimize what I was writing about in the Atlantic piece. I didn't want to get into it. I didn't want it to like like tip over into being an essay about the Brock Turner rape case. Um, I wanted it to be about this larger essay around self-censorship. And so I was careful not to go too much in the weeds there. And then of course, a lot of people on Twitter were like, why didn't you go into the weeds? And I was like, and so they dragged me there. And I knew that was going to happen. Um, I did not find most of, I would say 99% of the comments substantive or, you know, they just seemed to be this knee jerk thing. There was a lot of, what I didn't expect was I would say like pretty reputable female journalists that were like, I'm shaking while I'm right reading this. And it was so interesting to me that they would feel 
so deeply destabilized by the very question that maybe they had that story wrong. Um, That is an interesting point to me. I'm also fascinated by the person that goes on Twitter and announces that they're shaking over a lovely piece in the Atlantic, if I do say myself. Um, The third line of attack, and one that I had anticipated, but perhaps not as strongly as it came, was the cancel culture kerfuffle. And, and, you know, that a number of people and especially some like real brand builders out in that, in that line are really invested in taking any story that suggests that we live in a quote, cancel culture, whatever that means. And they are going to push back and tell you that it doesn't exist. Uh, the, the, a very, I think probably the most popular tweet was something like, how are you being silenced if you're writing in the Atlantic? Oh, that's a very, this is, this is, this is something that's, that's always, that's always brought out when anybody has a piece that's like sort of of interest, that's, you know, addressing something that's a hot button issue and you publish about it and you are now, you know, people have been brought down. It's like, well, uh, you know, you are not being silenced, but now that you've spoken up, now we will do our best to make sure that you will be silenced. So that's, you know, it, it, it was really quite, it was really quite remarkable to me also because the piece does not suggest I have been silenced. In fact, it's the opposite because of my profile. I was asked to write about a lot of these topics. I did not want to out of fear of what it would do to my career. It's very much a story about self-silencing and not mm-hmm. about being silenced, mm-hmm. even though I think you could write that story. Uh, I'm sure somebody could, that just was not my story. Um, I was disappointed to see a number of journalists that I had admired, really more like a handful, dunk on me over this essay. Uh, I also saw several journalists that I admired deeply tweeting favorably about it. And when I reached out to them and DM to thank them, they were like, oh, yeah, I got beat up for that. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't oh. mean to. I really admire you. And I'm sorry. I'll take a hit for you one day, too. So I, I, I never worry about, I, I'm always speaking up for stuff that I think is good. I don't care. They can't do anything. They, if they, they can't do anything to you. They think they can, but they only can if you're going to, uh, if you're going to shrink away or take something back. But I want to, I want to go back to something that you said in terms of, you know, okay, the average person that has nothing to do with journalism or any kind of like fact checking life you know, they can have a bad opinion or a good opinion, but they don't feel any need to back it up. And they can come at you and say something that has no merit whatsoever. But, you know, okay, it's like maybe they're a, a dentist or a shoe salesman. And I, I'm not expecting them, you know, if they just want to be kind of shallow about their 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 opinions of what you did. Okay, that's fine. But you know what? We are journalists. And the yeah. people you're talking about that are coming up, we deal in facts. Like, I have to get my facts right. Like, I have yeah. to. And if I don't get them right... Or do my best to get them right. And then, you know, when I haven't admitted or listened to people that are giving me better information. And you and I also came, we both came from the alt-weekly world where you were really allowed to write about, not only were you allowed to write about anything, you were writing about shit that was like 
right in front of people's faces, but they never looked at it. Like you, we, that was our, our, my big gigantic delight when I did this in LA for 15 years was to like, like go look under the, you know, the manhole covers and the lily figurative lily pads and find yeah. these ecosystems that people yeah. didn't know. And then like come back and say, look at this stuff. And people would be like, oh my God, this is so delightful. Would you get pushback sometimes? Sure. But I, I am going to posit that it's extra kind of sad making and almost a little perplexing when your colleagues that, you know, let's just take for one second the Brock Turner story, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, if they just said, okay, here's this writer, Sarah Heppelup. I've heard her. I know her byline. Gosh, she's a pretty damn good writer. What is she saying here? Well, this is fascinating. I didn't know that about the Brock Turner story. I did not know that these things that she's bringing up, that kind of changes the lens. Now, do I still feel like it's a terrible case? Of course, it's a t it's terrible for everybody. But I also think, I also think that sympathy is actually the right reaction, and I'll tell you why. Because first of all. Yeah, okay, she kind of admits she was blackout drunk. She doesn't fucking know what happened. He was also fucking drunk. And and we, like, completely got in this terrible, terrible situation where they're both drunk and lying on a freaking lawn humping. It's, it's important to note that none of his DNA was, I guess it wasn't insider, first of all, because he didn't get insider. Um, but it was like a terrible situation that there, but for the grace of God, you and I certainly could have been in. Hello, yeah. we're raising our hands. Yeah. And yet, okay, but it blows up. His life is fucking destroyed. Hers, not so much, but it cannot have been pleasant to have to have gone through this. In any way, including to this day, she, you know, has very publicly said, I don't fucking remember what happened. That can't be a good place. We started this conversation saying that. And so when we see colleagues of ours for whatever the, you know, the ideological temperature is or who they think their allies are supposed to be or if they're true believers or they're just a, when they don't care at all, they do not care at one bit for the facts of something, not only do I think this is a problem. Not only do I think this is terrifically fucking dangerous for the people that are bringing us the news, but it really makes me kind of sad. Like, you could kind of laugh at it, too, and be like, well, I'm sorry you are so disinterested in the world. I, I, I am sorry because you're supposed to be curious. Like, that's—we pay you to be curious and to bring the truth as best you can. And you are now saying, not only are we not interested in fucking doing this, but this woman, Sarah Heppelo, that did it— She's not allowed to fucking do it either. This yeah. is a problem. This is a real problem. And it is one of the reasons, I mean, we've we've seen it a million times. People talk about it the other why why do people not trust the news? Why do they not trust the media? Well, because they can smell it. Like they can smell that they are kind of be, being given a line that is convenient for that person or that matches up with whatever their newspaper wants. You know, the cut doesn't want to print this, okay? I, I find this, um, I find it really cowardly, Sarah. I really do. I really need people to have like bigger stones and come out and say, wow, Sarah Heppel presented me with something I didn't know and I'm going to be interested about in it. D don't forget that I also used Malcolm Gladwell as a human shield in that story because he well, had written a book called Talking to Strangers and done an entire chapter on this thing. And and nobody that I was seeing went up against him on that. Maybe like a few people, 
But uh, what's funny is that I felt like that was going to be insurance, but because Malcolm Gladwell has become such a fraught figure himself, uh, that was in from in some corners just more license to dismiss the whole thing. How I'm sorry, I'm 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 in the I'm in the dark about him becoming a fraught figure. How has he become a fraught figure? I don't know when or where it happened, but it sort of happened over the last five years that he like the Harper's letter or something. It's him signing the Harper's letter. It's him speaking out against. Um, I, I think he spoke publicly about Remnick not, you know, when Remnick. Uh, wanted Steve Bannon to speak at the New Yorker Festival, and yeah, Gladwell I, basically supported Remnick. Uh, oh yeah, that well, that that uh, he no, they should have let Steve Bannon speak at the New Yorker Festival. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I, I that's what I don't really know enough about. But okay. I was, I, I guess, knee jerk. My, my reaction was like, I'm interested in hearing Steve Bannon. Of course, of um, course. Even if know, he's like a total horse's ass, he's a, he's a obviously well, he's been influential. He's flamboyant. He's bananas like yeah i thought he would like as as the architect of the current moment whatever you think of the current moment i just thought he was very valuable but anyway yeah i think that i think in talking to strangers i know that he had several different chapters he thought the alcohol one was going to be the most controversial there was another one on joe paterno that turned out to carry most of the coverage also one about uh police and race and and yeah, race the police. And so, okay. so he, he hit a couple of third rails in there in that book. And so, you know, and then I think that there's a, in this, in the same way that cultural pendulums just swing. I mean, all of a sudden it was like, why does the internet hate Jonathan Franzen? I love Jonathan Franzen. You know, why, why would they hate him? But they just do because for 10 years he was so beloved and you know, like people hate David Foster Wallace. Like all these things that happen, it's just like we can't tolerate more than 10 years of loving someone culturally before we have to go eat them alive. So, and when I say they, I mean, this is a broad, vague they. I mean, I, I still love David Foster Wallace. My cat is named Wallace. Um, I st- And if I get another cat, I'll name him Franzen um, so they can be together again. But I, I love Jonathan Franzen, and, and I think Malcolm Gladwell is a, is a hell of a thinker. And so... Um, but but I wanted to make an uh, something an observation about your your point about journalism because it made me deeply sad too. I do think people are showing their ass on social media, and so when they do that, it's sort of a favor that they do to the rest of us. It's like, oh, okay, I see who you are now. I get who you are. I see clearer. But the other thing is, I've been thinking there was an inflection point that I think is very crucial, and it's when journalism pivoted from. Like when I was coming up in journalism, I was told journalism is never activism. No, they never cross streams. But some point in the last five to 10 years, the opposite became true. Journalism was only activism and what mattered. So therefore, if journalism is activism and activism is what matters, What's essential is not that you get the facts right, but that you get the moral standing correct. You get the, the moral message. stance correct, the message. So, you know, and I love Wes Lowry, who is one of the people that kind of articulated, um, 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 I forget his phrasing, but it was like that, that, that there should be a moral vision to publications. I mean, I think he's just an amazing journalist and thinker, but I, but not everybody thinks as deeply as Wes Lowry. I think he's the, the sort of like 
top tier of a certain way of thinking that has a lot of mess underneath it, where people just think if you're on the right side of history, it, it, the very means justify the ends. And so I don't want to listen to your facts. I started noticing this. It really predates Trump because I started noticing this in the feminist blogosphere around 2010 when people like Lori Gottlieb and Katie Royfe and Caitlin Flanagan would write pieces. They're all excellent writers. Whether you agreed with them or not, they were, they were really good writers interest in introducing very complicated, interesting ideas about agency and independence and, and modern womanhood. And I would watch the feminist blogosphere. I was running a place called Broadsheet at the time at Salon, but see this at Jezebel or a site called Feministing or some of the other channels that uh, were I was watching in my world slate had double X. I would watch these stories be myth- glibly collapsed and misinterpreted repeatedly because the no, no, it, it was just like, you can't talk. You can't talk. You're not allowed to talk. You have said the wrong thing and we have to shout you down. And I really, I participated in it a little bit because some of those things I didn't like the message of. And um, like, for instance, Lori Gottlieb wrote a, wrote a story for the Atlantic called, I think it was called Marry Me or, or whatever. Or, but it, or like about marrying like the, the, the lesser guy or something like that. Was that the one? Yeah, basically. Like, yeah, basically the idea is like. Or you should settle was, something like that. Yeah, it was it was the case for settling. Yeah. And the right, idea right. was that she knew a lot of women in their 30s that uh, had wanted to find the perfect partner, but never did. They were privately panicked about their own prospects and that she in her own life had noticed that she had been too, her standards had been too high. She had a, she had been a little bit unrealistic. She had a child on her own thinking it wouldn't be a problem now really wanted to be partnered. So I always felt that that was a personal essay that was sort of mm, questionably reframed as a societal prescription. In other words, just because it was good for her, I'm not sure it was good for everybody. But if I go back and read that piece now, which I've done a couple of times, I realized that she was speaking a truth that I could hardly name. I was about 33 years old. All my friends were married and I was single and I was living in New York and I was privately panicked that I wouldn't. Now, I was also dating someone that I very strongly believed falsely, it turned out, I would get married to. So I was sort of smugly like, I, I had my cake and ate it too. I could say like, well, I'm single and I'm not panicked, but at the same time, I'm like waiting for the ring. So it, it, it anyway, that's a maybe too long of a, of a, of a meandering, but I, uh, I think a lot of this stuff, at least in my world, it emerged a certain way of dialogue that was actually monologue, a certain way of not engaging with the best parts of, of an argument, but finding the most obnoxious parts and amplifying them, you know, I roll, uh, I want to throw my laptop across the room, uh, you know, really, uh, uh, sort of like exaggerated comic violence in reaction to this really well done, reasonable piece, even if you don't happen to like the style of the writer or the message. Okay. So that's happening around 2010. It really, and actually that was like 2008. So it really shocked me. And I started to see that spread outward. You know, it went into the comment sections of stories and then it went into social media 
And now it just feels like it's all over Twitter. And there is a righteousness on that side that I think if you're not on that side, you just kind of can't touch. There's nothing, for instance, when that happened, there's nothing Lori Gottlieb could have said to make people stop doing that or to change their mind. What she ended up doing was to write a book. It was a best-selling book that kind of more cleanly articulated her points. She had never been a fan of the title in the first place. And, and it, it did quite well. Uh, but, and then the feminists that I knew kind of ignored it mostly. I think I interviewed her actually. I did my best at that point was a little bit, was a little bit like on the other side of it and tried to do like a, like a more like good faith engagement on the topic. But anyway, um, there's nothing she could have said. And so, and it's such a weird place the, the, in the days after that Atlantic piece came back, at first I was starting to respond to people. Then actually Twitter cut me off. I've never, this never happened before. It actually said like, you have to step away. You've, you've Wait, been, what? yeah, I got a little pop-up message that said, slow down. Y- you've used your, I think I was liking too many things. You've used too many likes or something like that. Like it was, I've never even heard it or something like that. I, I don't, I'd never seen it. I didn't know it was possible. Sort of like then, your mom coming to you, like you've been at the computer too long and grabbing you by the scruff of the neck and saying, you need to come in here and eat something. It was completely wow. like that, except that it was, you know, the big brother of, of Twitter telling me to do this. So um, I was told by some of my friends who were watching this, you know, hey, I don't think it's worth a good use of your time to engage on these you know, it's not that you're like embarrassing yourself. It's more like you only have so much mental energy. And I, I think you might think about letting your piece speak for itself. And that was, I yes. thought, really, really good advice. But it also left me in this strange situation where were I to log on to Twitter, I was watching uh, a public assassination attempt on my character. And I was, my best advice was don't say anything. That's right. Also, you have this option, you know, this stuff can be extreme. I've I've been there myself, you know, it can be extremely captivating and you want to go in and you want to like challenge or you want to discuss or you or whatever it is. Um, But then you realize you can actually turn away and look toward the sunshine and actually just go do something else. Because that fire, you know, the more you feed it, the more people get involved and there are fewer and fewer interesting people. It just becomes this ad hominem throwing, you know, throwing poop at whatever is happening um, as opposed to any sort of engagement. There's no reason for you to be there. I want to, I wanted to say something in terms of um, two things, the sort of advocacy, advocacy journalism that mm-hmm. we've seen that now exists. I mean, it can be, some people call it like, oh, do you, I've, I've literally had people say to me, well, do you write things in order so people will click on it? I was like, I will go work in a laundromat before I am going to like make sure that I'm getting the clicks. I mean, you want to have a good title, you want to do good work, but no, that's, that's not what I write. But when I was in Portland covering the uh, protest in 2020 and 2021, I am not a popular figure in terms of a lot of the media in Portland and where I lived for 15 years. And um, I literally had journalists, not journalists, not only, not only message me directly, but put in print, if you are not advocating for the protesters, you are part of the problem. I'm like, 
God, it's no. so funny. I thought my job was to be here and to report what I said and what people told me. And I was like, that's actually not journalism. That's PR. And you're welcome to go into PR. That's fine. Or if you're, if you're going to write a, for a paper that that's what they do, that this is what you only do, you bring that particular message every day to your readers on the point of a spear, you're going to get a small contingent of super happy readers. Yes, look, it works so right. And everyone else is going to be like, you know what? Not not working for me. This is not what I see before my eyeballs. And it's also not interesting to me to keep being only given a message, a message, a message, a message, a message. It's not yeah. it's not journalism. Yeah. So the problem with that, I mean it's a shocking story, but the problem with that is that journalism, what is journalism? And journalism is really just a construct of the people that are in that profession. It's really not a fixed idea. And, and, you know, it's, it's basically, it's an evolving idea over time that reflects the values of that community. And if the primary journalists decide that that is what they want journalism to be, they will, uh, they will lead to the collapse of that industry for the reasons you just articulated. And they will give an opportunity for the growth of a new kind of writing. I don't know you know, who gets to say what journalism is, is a over my pay grade. But um, of course, I agree with you. But I also recognize that for in some ways, a lot of people will say things to me on Twitter, like, well, you just haven't adapted to the new ways. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's right. I, I get torn sometimes between fighting for the way things used to be, because I think they're right. And then also just being like, you know what, that may be what it is now. And maybe that means I don't want to be a journalist. Like I eventually decided, well, I've had a long fraught relationship with the word feminist, but I had called myself a feminist for many years. And then at some point I just sort of was like, why am I fighting so hard to try to stay in this club that like, I don't think they want me. And that's cool. I just think maybe I'm not a feminist. And well, why why do we need? I mean, I, I've said this before. Like, the only titles I really want is like mother and writer. Like, why do I need? Why yeah. do I need to watch? What's why? Don't tell me that I need to have this on my body or I'm some kind of traitor. No, you you don't have to have a freaking label. That makes it easy for you. And if you want to do that, that's fine. But the world is not that small. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I smoke too much. I was just thinking, what <laughs> labels? That's really smart. I mean. Listen, we live in this identitarian dystopia and people have these like, you know, I'm, uh, you know, they front load all the things that they are and that determine their value. It's really quite shocking and, and strange. But I was, I was thinking as you were talking, I like your labels and I was thinking, what are the ones I want? And it was like, okay, writer, alcoholic, just because it is important to my, I don't like it necessarily as much yeah. as I feel like it's very valuable to me. Um, and sex pot. Those sex pot, are, definitely. I, I yeah. we can share that. That's actually the name of this podcast right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, sex pot. Um, <laughs> well, it's you know what it is. People do this because a, it's easy. It's sort of like when you're in kindergarten. It's like okay, everybody's gonna the, the blue shirts over here, the red things over here. So like you can like we can be easily identifiable. But it's also, 
as we've seen, it becomes very easy then to identify the enemy, right? If you're not, if you're not going to click these, you know, the same thing that everybody else is liking, then we know that you might be, and you're especially the enemy if you come out and you write a piece like you did, or if you write the kind of pieces that I do that, you know, can regularly get you some doses of hate. However, I find if you just keep writing them, you find like all these incredibly interesting people that are yeah. also writing them. And, you know, people can go over there and, and fight amongst themselves. I've sometimes in one piece, I compared the sort of people that do these pylons or get some sort of energy from, from you know, for lack of a better term, from canceling people or for hating something publicly. I compared them to bulimics, right? It's like mm. you, you gorge at night and you gorge on mm. all this stuff thinking it's going to make you feel better. And then you get up in the morning and you just feel you're still not satisfied, you're not nourished, and you feel dirty. But you don't know how to do something else. You don't know how to fix it. So you just do it again. But that yeah. that sort of addiction to to internet hate or to being part of groups that that can bring someone else down i also call it sort of sometimes it's like a it's like a game of shoots and ladders remember that game when we were kids it's a board game right and so you should go all the way around the board to win but there are these shoots that you can fall down like if you make a mistake mm-hmm. and everybody wants to call you on that mistake and you and you can just be demoted there's also these ladders where if you, you know, you can, if you say the right thing or you get them, you can, you can ascend to the, to the top quicker. And I, I think the culture that we've lived in that can bring down people so fast has very much for the past couple of years been a game of shoots and ladders. And people are not going to want to give up that power. They're not going to want to give up the power that if they call me a rape apologist or they call you a rapist, uh, rape, uh, or a a They love to call me a rape apologist. Oh, I know. That's my, yes. I I got that a lot too. Um, Then that's something you- Nancy, I have to plug in my um, computer really quick. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Plug in your computer. I'm watching I thought, her. I had, I thought it had more juice, but I think the Zencaster thing is is it's burning up. It's sucking it out. It's, it's sucking, sucking it out. up all the energy. So anyway, I thought I of I thought of one other one other label I'll take, and that's Baker because I like to bake a lot. So I oh, will. Oh, uh, nice. I'll, I'll take, take that one. Um, I'll take. But, uh, what I was going to say is that people are not – someone, uh, a friend of mine, said to me recently that with the um, the start of the actual war in Ukraine, which I've been covering somewhat, mm-hmm. um, you know, the culture wars, to a certain extent, had to kind of take a back seat. Like, you're not going to see – there's not going to be 19 of 20 op-ed pieces in the, in the New York Times about the culture war issues because we've got a real war. And it's like, that's what we're going to pay attention. And he's like, do you think that – do you think that – some of this culture war stuff will be supplanted. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that, but I think I think we are, to a certain extent, outgrowing uh, the whole, let's see how fast we can immolate people and destroy their lives online. And I yeah. think your being able to feel like you could write this now is mm-hmm. indicative of that as well. Now, are the people that have won at the games of shoots and ladders going to want to give up that power, that insta power? No, of course they're not. Why would you want to give up power if it's one of your best tools? But I think, I think that we're kind of evolving into the next part of how we're going to to conduct ourselves. And I want to say one more thing about um, journalism as we learn to practice it. And I, and I think as still as a lot of people, even if they're 25, learn to practice it. You can practice... And you've done this. We'll talk about this right now in a second. And I'm doing it too. You can practice old school truth telling, report what you find, report what you see, do it as best you can, admit when you're wrong, but you can do it with all these interesting new mediums. So you're not actually 
fogeying in any way because you want to kind of cleave to the kind of journalism that you love, but you're bringing it to people in new ways, right? I We started a media company, Paloma Media. I'm sitting in a studio that I literally built in my nightgown podcasting with you. You just did a, an eight-part series podcast. So these are ways to get the information that still has like the truth to it, but get it to people in a new way. And that's what, obviously, that's what we have to do because, well, first of all, because we want to and because it's delightful, but also because that's the new mediums and the places that are going to say, no, 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 uh, what we're going to do is be advocacy journalists and have our little mm-hmm. alt-weekly Portland Mercury or whatever in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Portland, and that's what we're going to do. They are just going to slowly commit suicide because there are not enough people that are interested in that to keep that alive. They're just not. Yeah. So I, I think that there's so much that you said was fascinating, but I wanted to go back to a couple of points before we move on to the next thing, which is that um, your point about the bulimia and the idea of gorging and never getting full, I thought was really smart. And it reminded me about so many different things in American culture. One of the reasons David Foster Wallace was my favorite writer for a long time was because of the book Infinite Jest. Infinite Jest is um, a really profound masterwork about the idea that American culture is uniquely set up for addiction. It was the first time that I had really seen that idea articulated. And uh, it's very prescient in the way that, you know, that book writes about a movie that is so entertaining, people can't stop watching it. And it came out years before the iPhone. But I really believe that the iPhone is like the movie that American culture can't stop watching. And that so much of what we have done in a sort of materialist capitalist society um, for lots of good reasons and stupid reasons is set people up with the idea that something outside of them can fix them. They're constantly scrambling to fill up that hole. They're constantly feeling empty. And I think that he, you know, Twitter is really like a, like an extreme example of this, right? People get very addicted to it. Whatever you think about the concept of addiction, I think people usually self-define as like, I'm addicted to this thing. I know it's a problem. And, um, you know, I'm reminded of a, I don't know if you saw the movie, the end of the tour, which was about, okay, well, it's a movie version of a conversation that Wallace had with um, a writer named David Lipsky, who's now a, professor at, I think, Columbia or NYU, I can't remember. But anyway, um, he's talking to him, he's played uh, Jason Jason Siegel plays Wallace. And he's saying, you know, like he's talking about the incoming internet. And he's like, man, we got to build up some internal infrastructure. Or I don't know about you, but I'm going to have to leave the planet. And it has never been lost on me that Wallace left the planet. Oh, man. Oh, man. The other thing I wanted to say, one of my favorite things that was said to me when I was going through this whole Twitter kerfuffle, I like that word, I was having a really rough time because some of my people that I thought might have been friends, they weren't good friends, but they were, I'd helped them in their early in their career. I'd been there for them, I thought. Um, I was seeing them roll on me in Twitter, on Twitter, and it, it hurt. 
And I said to you, uh, you had called me to talk about us doing this podcast and me coming out to New York to do fifth column, which was super exciting. Both of them were just so exciting. But I, I said to you in a pretty, in a pretty shaky voice, I'm losing friends. And you said to me in a very steady voice, but you're getting new ones. Yeah. And that's how, you know, we shed skins and we go to the next thing and it can like always be, even though obviously you've gone through rough times, I've gone through rough times, it can always be delightful. I, I, I absolutely believe that. I believe that we, there's like infinite delight if we um, walk toward it. So I'm going to make an executive decision here. I'm going to make an executive decision that we're going to come back and talk again. That yeah, sound? that sounds okay. perfect. We're going to do that because I got a lot of things here and uh, and also the things that I uh, emailed you about this morning that I want to talk about. But um, So maybe the next time we come back, we're going to talk about the Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders podcast, yes. which as a New York City girl was like literally you were talking about Mars and yet I could yes. see it. I could see it. And then uh, I think I want to talk next time too a little bit um, about Me Too. Yeah. A little bit about women and agency and, and victim mileage. Um, so I guess I'm teeing up uh, people to get ready for the next time, and then you and I will decide when that is. Wasn't one of the things on the bullet points, <laughs> capital letters, men? Men. And I want to talk about men, because I love men. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. And I'm genuinely worried about them. I'm genuinely worried about them. Like, oh, I love I'm- them. I love them dearly. Um, they're such a beautiful part of my life. I, I have an older brother that I just worshipped growing up. And so I'm, I'm very much a girly girl, but I um, also just, I just adore the company of men. Me and it's been a beautiful part of my life, but it also, like, I get my feelings hurt a lot. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like they're treating me like a guy and they'll make fun of me. And I'm like, that hurt my feelings. They're like, why are you crying? <laughs> I had a, I had Matt Welch say something to me the other day. I said something like, oh, wouldn't it be in blah, blah. And he looked at me. He's like, you know, you think you know dudes, but you really don't. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll put it to the test. Yes. Um, okay. Everyone, thanks so much for uh, listening to the Diploma Media Podcast. We'll be back. Sarah and I will be back pretty soon. We'll decide when. Sarah, this has just been a delight. Oh, my gosh. I could have done it all day. Thank you so much. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye.